0: unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. So the Thanks for downloading this episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, I want to welcome all of you who are listening, coming from iTunes or wherever you're linking to us. Uh, I also want to welcome this morning my two co-hosts. First of all, from Athens, Georgia, the original Alabama homeschooling outlaw, Mr. David Grubbs.
1: David, (laughs) how are you this morning? I'm doing well, Nathan.
0: All right. And broadcasting from Tallahassee, Florida... He plays Fred to our Shaggy and Scooby, Mr. Michael Farmer. How Hi, are you how doing, you Michael?
2: Guys? And you didn't introduce yourself, Nathan, so I'll introduce you. Uh, that's Nathan, uh, Nathan P. Gilmore, as Skype tells me. He's an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia.
0: Yes, and today, episode five of the Christian Humanist Podcast, we're going to be talking about a moment in really 21st century you know, Christian thinking uh, this conflict between what they call emergent and the new Calvinism, using both of those names, of course, you know, we're going to talk about what they mean later. But first, I want to talk about a little bit of feedback from our podcast. First of all, uh, in our email box at thechristianhumanist@gmail.com, at we got a message from Beth Crompton, a very brief and a very cryptic message. Uh, she, appre- she expressed appreciation for us, didn't say much more. So, Beth, thank you for your feedback. Also from the CWC radio show over at Bethlehem University, they proposed a fascinating idea, and I want to ask them, beg them, beseech them for a rain check. Um, Their idea was to take their students, our students, and get everybody watching the same movies at the same time and have a series of podcasts about our students' reactions to certain films. I think that's a fabulous idea uh... unfortunately i'm gonna have to plead my own weakness here and say that i am in the middle of finishing my dissertation i have a nine week old at home I'm new faculty and i just don't have the time or the energy right now to do it what i will ask is can we do this in say two or three years when michael and david are teaching somewhere uh... i'm gonna throw it back to you cwc i think that it's a great idea if you can wait for us a little bit i think we can make it happen Uh, We are still planning, I think, guys, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong. uh, We're still planning to do a a series of our own on films, probably sometime in early 2010. Is that right, David?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, Uh, and Michael, I assume that you're all right with it too. Yes. All right, excellent.
2: Uh, So before we started, I I talk about movies. Go ahead, Michael. uh, But before before uh, before we move on from this, I want to say if uh, any of our listeners don't listen to the CWC podcast. Um, I really think you should. It's, it's my absolute favorite. Listen to it every week and not just because they're uh, very, 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 very generous in plugging this podcast.
0: Yes. I mean, that, it's definitely a show worth, worth listening to. Uh, they talk about really from more of a historical perspective because they're actually teaching a Western civilization course. Uh, they're gradually working their way up through the centuries towards our own era. Uh, fascinating discussions. Good people. Uh, I I second what Michael says. I mean, it's a great podcast to listen to. Well, at any rate, uh, today's topic, uh, this is one of those things that, you know, since I'm moderating this week, I wanted to pose the question to my co-hosts, a couple big ones that we're going to discuss as, as the podcast wears on. First of all, uh, how do we make sense of these movements? Second of all, to what extent are they even important enough to talk about? Now, Time Magazine called one of them the New Calvinism, labeled it one of the more important new ideas that's gripping the world. The other one, Emergent, uh, claims a couple of, I believe, Time Magazine, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when they made their list of the 25 most important evangelicals in America, a couple of these guys made their list. And my own involvement, this is why I'm so interested in it, is that uh, I really stumbled upon it Forrest Gump-like in the middle of the decade. Uh, I was unemployed. I started fiddling around on websites and I discovered this thing called emergent church, uh, which to me at the time just looked like they had read some of the books I read in seminary and were interested in them. So I said, sure, I'll talk about them with you. I came to find out later that some people thought that they were the greatest threat to evangelical Christianity in a generation. Other people thought they were the future of evangelicalism. Then I came across another group of people, uh, that, like I said, Time Magazine would eventually call the New Calvinists. Uh, These are folks who really want to bring a hard edge of confessionalism and really church discipline to evangelicalism. Uh, Again, I fell in with this group. Uh, I became a contributing writer on the blog Conservative Reformed Mafia, uh, even though I always had to introduce myself when I wrote my articles for them as someone who isn't especially conservative, and you know, doesn't consider myself a Calvinist. Uh, they still wanted me on because I could talk about philosophy and apologetics and things like that. Uh, but the first question I want to pose, and I mean, you know, this is one of those things, you know, because of my own online involvement with both movements, you know, I know some of the ins and outs of them. David, in our email conversations, I mean, you have said that you've had very limited exposure to these folks, uh, you know. This isn't a scientific survey but David Grubbs I mean what have you heard about these folks what contacts have you had with these two movements how influential do you think they are in the larger American Christian experience
1: Gosh all I can cite is my own my own experience um back when I was in Bible college there were books that other people were reading and they were talking about uh you had a crowd of guys who was reading Uh, everything John Piper wrote um, I didn't realize it at the time but apparently uh, he's supposed to be associated with this neo-Calvinism thing Um, they started an Edwardsian society where they were reading Jonathan Edwards Um, I didn't join uh, me and and my gang of buddies thought that those guys were kind of snobbish, kind of elitist and we thought Edwardsian sounded goofy (laughs) <laughs> um, and then there were the other people, usually the ones that were studying to be music ministers, who were reading Blue Like Jazz and Brennan Manning. Um, which I read Brennan, uh, I, I browsed a bit of Brennan Manning and thought he was uh, uncomfortably squishy on a number of things.
0: Now, refresh my memory, David. I'm, I'm forgetting which titles Brennan Manning's associated with Ragamuffin uh, Gospel
1: uh yeah the ragamuffin gospel and uh so, some others like that okay thank you um so you know but but i wasn't really interested in that either um i i am a i'm a dilettante in theology and philosophy and if it doesn't catch my curiosity i don't feel the urge to look into it um i, I was kind of surprised when i saw the name josh harris um in in the list of of uh of names in the notes that you gave us, Nathan, because I knew of Josh Harris, but only as the guy who doesn't want you to date yes,
0: he's actually become one of the leading voices in what they call the New Calvinist movement.
1: Well, his dad stayed at my house, no um, kidding. Yeah, no kidding. Uh his dad was uh one of the sort of the the big personalities in the early homeschooling movement and he would go around the country giving conferences about how it's done and how to work with, you know, local authorities and local churches and so forth and so on. And one time he gave a conference in Birmingham and he stayed at my family's house.
0: Also known as the uh Outlaw Hideout.
1: Yes, yes, in our our outlaw den of homeschoolers. Um so uh, apparently I've been having brushes with people who were affiliated with these movements and somehow I never realized that they were supposed to be something part of something bigger I I you know
0: well that resonates with my own experience David because like I said I was having conversations with some of the mid-level people who became the stars of emergent and then later on discovered that I'd been consorting with very dangerous people <laughs> so I you know it, it, I I think both of us have a bit of Forrest Gump in us. Uh Michael Farmer when I delivered a paper at Tacoa Falls College your alma mater, uh I mentioned emergent briefly and received a a very strident response really. It took me aback a little bit. Uh you know, what is the status of emergent there at Tacoa Falls and what have your experiences been with both of these movements, emergent and the New Calvinism?
2: Well, I um <clears throat> I'll say that I encountered the emerging church as the emerging church, um, different from you guys. But that's probably because I was in college when it first really blew up, and uh, it, it came along after after or, uh, after that for you guys. And so uh, it, it's still not terribly popular at TFC, from best I can t- uh, best I can tell. But it it has um, it has its followers and its apologists. And uh, certainly I encountered it there. A faculty member uh, suggested that I read Blue Like Jazz. He said it uh, reminded reminded him of me. And uh, he had me read Brian McLaren's A New Kind of Christian, and I uh, I enjoyed both of those quite a bit, actually. And they were kind of in line with where I was philosophically at the time. Um, I was in my final year of my undergraduate work. This was 2004. And uh, I just discovered critical theory, and so I was struggling to find a way to reconcile that with my faith. And those books, especially, especially the McLaren um, title, uh, showed me that there was, in fact, a way to do that. And when I took critical theory in earnest the next year in my master's program, I declared myself uh, outright a postmodern Christian, but at the same time, I never really delved that deep into the actual writings of the emergent church. I was much more interested and troubled uh, by the actual theory that I was reading in class, and I figured that most of the emergent stuff was just watered down and written for a popular audience. Uh, That's probably not true, but I was a holiday master's student, so... Um,
0: Well, I think that's true. And I mean, I think that's one of the oddities of intellectual movements that, you know, on the one hand, something like postmodern theory has taken off and taken a popular face uh, in the same way that, you know, Freudian theory did. You know, we've got Alfred Hitchcock, who is sort of the popular face of Freud uh, in a way that, you know, I guess things like classical philology, you know, with the obvious exception, David, of Tolkien's lord of the rings novels those are philological pop culture hmm. uh you know there isn't a whole lot and i guess umberto echoes name of the rose okay we'll get those two out of the way Well, more but
1: semiotics it, what now more semiotics than anything well else.
0: yeah echo yes I, I guess that's true but at any rate you know there wasn't an explosion of philological pop culture the way that there was a freudian pop culture or postmodern pop culture um so, I mean, Great. I guess, I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I mean, no, as far fine. as the new Calvinists go, what have your, what's your exposure been to them?
2: Oh, I, I didn't finish with the emergence, I'm sorry. Oh, my bad, my bad. So critical theory eventually caused this big fissure in my face and I, uh, faith, and when I came back to the church, I, I ended up rejecting most of critical theory, and at that point, I didn't have much interest in the emergent church in any kind of um, existential way. I wasn't interested in joining it anyway. Um, So I subscribe to a few emergent podcasts, and I try to keep up on the movement, but I don't consider myself in any way emergent or emerging or whatever other classifications they have. Um, As for the neo-Calvinists, I don't have that much exposure. Um, I've seen enough Mark Driscoll videos to know that I find him uh, belligerent, offensive, and crass. And uh, even though I'm much closer to his theology than McLaren's, for example, um, I'm sure I'd rather drive across the country with McLaren um, uh, than than Driscoll. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what that says about either one of them. Um I I you know I read a little bit of Piper in coll- in high in high school rather and um of course jo- Josh Harris kept uh, all the girls at my college from dating anyone uh and me in particular. <laughs> uh,
0: I was lucky enough to come through college before that whole wave hit.
2: Lucky you.
1: Yeah, he hit the homeschoolers first. I still kind of hate him for that. <laughs> but that's okay.
2: Well, at
0: any rate, Michael, I you know one of the things that you know I always notice whenever these conversations about emergent and the new Calvinist comes up is that there are certain names that always come up. You know, be they Mark Driscoll, Brian McLaren, John Piper, Tony Jones. Uh, it seems like you know these are movements that are defined by publishing, defined by large multi-site video feed churches. You know, one of the odd things about both of the movements is. You know, they arise out of a critique of evangelicalism, part of which is that evangelicalism, pardon me, is entirely too caught up in celebrity culture, celebrity preachers, uh, celebrity authors. I mean, what do you make of, you know, this publishing empire on one one hand, the string of megachurch plants on the other side? I mean, is the celebrity culture simply inescapable? In a television and internet age, or is there something inherent in these movements that leads to this celebrity uh, celebrity culture? I won't try to make it a noun. Um,
2: I I do think um, I, I do think there's something inherent. I don't think you can have an organized movement that amounts to anything in the 21st century without having some kind of celebrity figurehead. So if it weren't Mark Driscoll and Tony Jones, it, it would be two other people. Um, so I'm trying not to begrudge them the culture of celebrity that's obviously amassed around those movements, um, but I fail at that most of the time. <laughs> uh, a- anyway, with the emergence, um, I, I do think you obviously have a theological movement that belongs so much to the multimedia age that their their total embrace of media makes a lot of sense. So I'd be surprised if Tony Jones didn't have a video blog or if there weren't 800 po- emergent podcasts. Um, and, and the strength of that movement, I think, if we're being honest, lies to some extent in their ability to use those technologies and to have that publishing empire in the case of the emergence, um, both in print and online. Uh, as for the neo-Calvinists, the, the video feeds in, in those churches, I was thinking about this because uh, um, it, it is kind of a, kind of an oddity, but, but the, those video feeds seem in line with earlier Calvinist intentions to some extent. Um, we, we've talked about this before. Uh, if Calvinism does, in fact, reduce the entire Christian experience to an intellectual experience, it makes a lot of sense to have the video feed serving servants, sermons um, to thousands of people at one time, right? If you're at church just to hear the sermon, it doesn't matter if you're hearing it in the church or on the video feed. And so I, I, I don't know if it's all that different than some of the practice of the early uh, early reformers. You know, Luther and Calvin and the rest of them, they had their sermons printed and distributed to churches all over Europe so that uh, bad pastors could just read these sermons by Calvin and Luther instead of coming up with their own. And that way, you know the flock is getting, um, getting some sort of good sermon. So I, I, think, I think that's kind of what the video feeds are doing, um, but I still don't like it. And I think it's really different. <laughs> Um, in, in a key way, it's, it's really different from, from reading somebody else's sermons. And, uh, and, and that, that key way is that church isn't just about hearing a sermon and being a pastor is, isn't just about preaching. And so, um, I, I'm a little troubled by those video feeds. David,
0: do you have anything to add to that?
1: Uh, two things. One, a funny anecdote and the other kind of a, a historical observation, um, I went to a conference uh in my uh high school days at which Josh Harris was touting his don't date anybody uh message. This was right. this the was the actual back title
0: being w- I kiss dating
2: goodbye, right?
1: Yeah, the actual okay. title being <laughs> I kiss dating goodbye. And because
2: of that book, I never
1: got the chance to kiss it hello. Yeah, eg- exactly. <laughs> um so i'm at this uh this massive conference in this mega church with like two layers of balconies it, it looks like an opera house, and the place is filled with youth groups. Josh Harris comes on the stage and at this- t- all right now he's shaved his head okay he's you know he's 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 not the young guy that he used to be, but when he came out on stage at that time, he was young he was twenty something he was slick. He reminded me a lot of Brandon Lee from you know Bruce Lee's son. Back from some of oh his, sure from the Crow. Yeah, back from some of his his earlier movies when he looked. There was actually one that he was the sidekick of Dolph Lundgren. It's a bad movie, but anyway, Josh Harris looked like him in that movie. And when he came out, the girls screamed. And one of my friends, uh, well. First one girl, uh, every, everybody went quiet after the clapping and the screaming and a girl off in some other balcony across the room screamed, Josh, I love you! And he gave her a shout out. At which point one of my friends in the youth group did the same thing and he ignored her and she was so embarrassed. So anyway, celebrity culture. Um, the The irony of a I kiss dating goodbye conference and all the girls screaming the speaker's name. Um, The historical observation is: has not Christianity kind of always been a celebrity culture where movements of thought are associated with significant men's names? I mean, we have the church fathers, (laughs) um, you know, the Protestant reformers, the popes. um, The bizarre culture
2: of celebrity around the Desert Fathers.
1: Uh yeah there was a, there was a cult of celebrity around the desert fathers these were guys who wandered out into the desert didn't eat a lot prayed and then died in obscurity but but writing biographies about these guys was a huge uh you know cottage industry um some of the some of the biggest names in uh the nicene era well Athanasius for example wrote lives of uh wrote lives of the desert fathers Sure, sure, a life
0: of St. Anthony and such.
1: Exactly. And these were men who utterly shunned, you know, society, but but they were made uh they were made figureheads because I, I think it's it's inescapable. Humans want to see the word incarnate. People people want to see ideas lived out in lives. And we like to associate faces with creeds. All and right. I,
0: That's fair enough, David. I want to ask you one follow-up question, though. I mean, part of what these movements claim to be preaching, though, is a sort of democratization of Christian teaching. I mean, both uh, in the neo-Calvinists, you know, where they say, all right, you need to get away from, you know, these celebrity preachers and really study theology. Every parishioner needs to study it. Emergent, of course, saying, you know, we need to get away from paid clergy entirely uh, and, you know, make this move. I mean, is there a contradiction in that because of their claims, or are their claims themselves just in bad faith? Do you think?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that their claims were in bad faith, but I would say that they're fighting human nature.
0: I right, say uh, a little bit more.
1: I, 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 I think that it, that it is in humans to seek leaders, um, to seek, uh, to, to. Identify the person who seems to be articulating best what you happen to believe, and to want to associate yourself with that person. I think that's, you know, I think that's part of, you know, part of part of human nature, um, you know. And and if they're if they're trying to, in some way, make Christianity a a faceless creed associated with no name but Christ, I think they're going to fail because well paul was fighting that in the epistle to uh, the corinthian church <laughs>
0: <laughs> certainly certainly
1: so you know uh, for 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 good or ill i think it's you know I, I think it's something that i don't think humans are capable of getting past at the very least you're going to have to be able to know a string of authors names so you can tell your buddies hey these are the books i want you to read you know and at that point you've made them celebrities. So, you know.
0: All right, all right. Well, We'll move on to our next little bit. I mean, one of the things that uh, I like to do when I moderate and one of the things that we do on this podcast a lot is to bring our own scholarly pursuits into engagement with the questions that we're asking. So, uh, David, I'd like to start with you. And, I mean, one of the things about what we call now medieval Christianity, of course, at the time, they would have called themselves, you know, simply living in the seculum. Uh, and we can talk about that in a little bit if we want to. Uh, But, you know, one of the things looking at history through a rearview mirror, you know, we can see that, you know, just to take two easy examples, uh, in the 5th century you've got a Celtic Christianity in Britain that's very different from the orthodoxy of Constantinople, and which is in turn very different from what's going on in Central Europe with the tribe that we call the Goths. And then if we fast forward, you know, a few centuries beyond that, you know, we've got something that's got its own character going on in England under King Alfred. Again, something very different going on in Rome and something seemingly from another planet going on in the Christian kingdom of Ethiopia. (laughs) Uh, Now, I mean, one of the things that Emergent uh, often claims about church history, and I want to ask you because you actually do some serious work in Christian history. They say, all right, you look back at these earlier centuries, there is a definite pluralism going on there. There's definite diversity, definite definite difference. And yet historically we can say that all of them were part of one thing that we call Christianity. You know, their reply their extension of that thought is, all right, why can't we look at, you know, differences among our creeds now and simply say, let's all be Christians together instead of haggling and trying to make everyone the same. My hunch is, and I'm going to ask you to comment on this for a few minutes, that the two phenomena are related but not as easily identical as some of these emergent history claims are making them. Why don't you speak to that for a few minutes, David Grubbs?
1: Sure. Um, uh, Again, I've got two hands on this. Um, On one hand, yes, you can look back in history and see all of this variation. However – I think it's 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 incorrect to to kind of compress past centuries and uh geographically divergent positions and treat them as as one kind of synchronous pluralistic single culture in which all of these things were thriving at once happily as neighbors okay um, because well not only were many of these you know many different movements divided by time and by place but also uh, constant you know the eastern orthodoxy split off from the western church represented by rome um it was the great schism they split over the 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 filioque whether or not the the spirit proceeds from both the father and the son or just the father um you know celtic monasticism got shut down when uh uh, a, a stronger influence from rome came over and 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 the notions of of coed monasticism and married monasticism um were uh were shut down by uh ideals of celibate uh monasticism um you know you mention the goths uh, and I, I, I assume you're talking about the goths for whom uh, wolfila translated the bible yes um they were Arians <laughs> and uh, persecuted, uh, you know, to to some degree uh, the the Christians who, who accepted Nicaea. Not necessarily. Um, I, I don't know so much that they were, that they persecuted the rank and file, but certainly uh, bishops who continued to accept Nicaea uh, had a difficult time dealing with uh, the Arian Gothic monarchs. Right,
0: Boethius well, didn't fare too well either.
1: Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess my point is this: Yes, you see a lot of diversity in the past, but you don't see harmony between the diversity. What you see, you, you, yes, you do see divergent views, but each of the each of the parties that held those divergent views held them passionately and in in exclusive opposition to the people who differed with them. And they fought over it, um, you know, like in in uh, the Bede, Bede's history of the kings of of uh, of uh, the kings of Britain, uh, the, the 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 kings of the English. Um, when he talks about the the councils over the date of Easter, when do we celebrate Easter? And it's this big clash between uh, the Celtic Church and uh, the Roman tradition, and. Ultimately, ultimately, Rome wins out, and the you know in Scotland and in uh, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms where uh, Celtic uh, strains of Christianity had had a big influence, um, they changed when they celebrated Easter. You know, so you do, you don't look, we can't look back in, in in Christian history, and while we may identify them all as part of one big thing now. That doesn't mean that they didn't fight between each other, and it also doesn't mean that they didn't see the differences that separated them as somehow unimportant in light of the things they had in common.
0: Uh, say a little bit more about that last statement.
1: Um, well, from – again, I, I am no expert on the emergence whatsoever. Uh, all, all I know is – is uh, well – the, the stuff you pointed me towards, Nathan. All um, right. <laughs> but it's it seems to me that 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 their notion of uh, of inclusivism uh, of an inc- sort of an inclusive Christianity is is dependent on a uh, on an unwillingness to to settle for specific. Theological answers to theological questions, but instead a determination to keep those questions open and to continue and to continue discussing them and discussing the different views, but not deciding where you set um, it's it's uh, but ultimately rooted in in the belief that whatever we end up saying about it, whatever we end up saying about theological truth will be insufficient. <laughs> am i representing it correctly
0: uh i would probably adjust that a little bit just to say that you know i certainly that represents part of the emergent spectrum and you know with both of these movements we're talking about you know a lot of a lot of people therefore a lot of different opinions but i think right. you are representing a broad enough part of it that you know i think you can go on with your point
1: okay okay um well all, all i can say in response to that is is that when we look back into church history and we look back at the various controversies, you don't find—I I, I can't think of anyone who had that attitude, of anyone who thought, you know, we're close. You know, we—we we Roman style Christians are close enough to these Irish style Christians that we can disagree about when we celebrate Easter, and it's all good. Even Bede, who concedes that you know that the saints of the Irish church were genuine christians were pious men who were models of good conduct and especially um models of how to be a good minister um he still said yeah they were wrong about easter and they needed to change <laughs> so you know um uh, uh, again uh something that i've gathered is that uh, emergence uh, focus on the life that you live. That you that you live like Christ. Uh, that you minister like Christ. And that's what Bede commented on. That these uh, that these Irish uh, these Irish saints, these Irish bishops, that they did that. But he still thinks that they need to adjust the date of when they celebrate Easter. Hmm. So, you know, uh, I, I guess I guess that's the biggest the biggest point I can make there.
0: So, so if I can summarize you and you know, probably get you wrong, let me know if I do. Sure. You know, what you would say is you know, the prime difference is that they would still confess that the church is uh, one, holy, catholic, and apostolic, uh, and that that might even include those who disagree. But they would say that it is a far more important matter to resolve those disagreements right now rather than to leave them open for further discussion. Yes, okay, fair and, enough, fair enough.
1: well, on the other hand, you have uh the sick at known tradition in in the scholastics um which if I'm going to point to something in uh, especially the middle ages that looks more like uh the the attitude that that uh I, I, i've seemed to see uh in in the stuff that you gave me about the emergence um the the yes and no tradition, the on-one-hand-on-the-other-hand tradition of of discussing uh, the the Father's commentary on, on scriptures and of just sort of arguing the different views. Um, that, I think, might be seen as uh, analogous. But even so, uh, being a medieval theologian was not a safe thing. You couldn't just sort of sit in your academy and safely debate any idea – Without it uh, coming back to bite you.
0: Oh um, sure, sure, and you know again, how, you know, just ask yourself how did Abelard fare? Exactly. And obviously, he had other baggage too, but. Uh,
1: <laughs> or didn't?
0: Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say less <laughs> less at the end than at the beginning, but we won't go any further than that euphemism, David. Thank you. We, we need to You're keep welcome. our G rating here. Um. Now, bef- before we sink into that well of depravity, I want to turn over to Michael Farmer and ask. Uh, you know, turning our attention over to the New Calvinist movement, you know, Michael, one of your areas of study is ex- existentialist philosophy. Uh, I know that, you know, one of the strong emphases of existentialism is that, you know, the shape of human nature is, or I won't say is, because, I mean, that's a bad existentialist word, rises out of the actual concrete existence with other people, uh, that people live out, in other words, uh, you know, to use the catchphrase or the summation, existence precedes essence. Is that right? Yeah. Am I? I'm getting it basically right. Um, you know, in existentialist category, categories, I mean, one of the interesting things about the new Calvinist movement is, you know, this strong devotion to, and even sometimes a theological. Well, I, don't, I don't even know how to express the relationship between you know, some of the most vocal new Calvinists and their pastors, you know, I mean, when people talk about Mark Driscoll who are a part of that Mars Hill church, I mean, they talk about him, you know, as someone who really is an authority figure that's in a way that's unusual for Protestants. I mean, you know, using some tools of existentialist philosophy and you can run with this any direction you want. I mean, you know, what's going on with human nature, human existence, uh, in the circles of the new Calvinism.
2: Well, actually, what I'd, what I'd like to talk about, and it's, it's um, related but not exactly what you asked. <laughs> All right, go ahead, sure. Um, instead of that question, I'd like to answer another question. I, I, I want to talk about the relationship to uh, history, which is um, kind of the same thing. Oh, um, sure, it's
0: one of Heidegger's big questions at the end of being in time. So That's
2: right. I think the neo-Calvinists definitely, definitely see themselves as recreating the roles of the 17th century. Um, the neo-Calvinists I've encountered are are super into the Puritans. And that's a fine group of people to be into as long as you recognize that our historical situation is drastically different than the Puritan historical situation. And I think to some extent, and and maybe this comes from that love for the Puritans, I think the neo-Calvinists are upset about the wrong things. I I think they end up defending Calvinism instead of historic Christianity. and, And I think Calvinism, if I think Calvinism is one of the better manifestations and translations of that Christian message, I certainly don't think it is the manifestation. So I, I think in identifying themselves so strongly with 17th century Puritans, um, they're doing themselves a kind of existential disservice. They're, they're not recognizing their own concrete historical existence, um, which is not to say I think the emergent people are any better because I think what you get there instead is a free-for-all ecumenism. Ec- ecumenism, ecumenism I don't, I don't, yeah. Ecumen. Uh, whatever, I can't say that word. They're uh, free-for-all <laughs> <all right>. ecumenical. <laughs> so um, th- well, if the neo-Calvinists are going around saying the differences between our confessions are the most important thing there is, the emergent church um, says they don't matter very much at all. And so I guess what I'm saying is that neither group has a proper view of history, as Heidegger might define it. Um, The neo-Calvinists ignore the extent to which the individual doesn't fit into these broad categories, and the emergent church seems to ignore the extent to which we are our history and we are our confessions. And the one side takes the denominational confessions too seriously, but the other one doesn't take them seriously enough.
0: All right. You know, one of the things, and I want to, you know, get back to our general discussion here now that we've gotten out of our specialties for a minute. Uh, One assumption that, you know, keeps this group of friends and this podcast going is that, you know, even though... Uh, We have significant differences uh, that I think our listeners heard played out last week, certainly, uh, that we still have something in common uh, that's adequate to sustain a distinctively Christian friendship. All right. Uh, And, you know, I'd I'd like to think that's the case. I hope that you two, you know, agree that and you don't grumble about me when we hang up the Skype call.
2: You're a stepping Uh, stone for me, Nathan.
0: Well, that's all right. Uh, But, you know, one of the accusations that's laid at the feet of both of these groups, and I want to talk a little bit about how it, you know, takes shape in both because it's less obvious in one case, is that they define themselves to a great extent by how many Christians they can reject. So, you know, on the neo-Calvinist side, as Michael already pointed out, there's this, you know, Michael would call it an obsession, I would call it a strong concern with, the fine, minute details of the Westminster Confession and such, and ways that we interpret it, you know, so that we can define as outside of what we're doing people who, you know, disagree on gender roles, on the role of Scripture, on the eschaton, on, you know, what I would say the general public, and I might be mischaracterizing this, would consider theological minutiae. Whereas on the other hand, you know, because the emergent movement Uh, also defines itself against evangelicalism, a different sort of moralism arises, I think, uh, rooted in what I would call new left politics. In other words, you know, if you are not adequately concerned about the environment, if you're not adequately concerned about gay rights, uh, if you are inadequately concerned about, uh, you know, this or that, what most people would call political cause, then you are also not part of us. Now, David Grubbs, I mean, I know that you've had limited exposure to those sorts of things, but, you know, given the conversation we just had about the tension between confessing one church and the spirit of correction that exists among different groups within that church, I mean, what would you say to that relationship between these, you know, relatively small movements numerically and the larger American Christian scene.
1: Well, I, I've not seen these. I've not seen these movements in large because, for the most part, I haven't paid attention to them um, in their larger manifestations. But I have seen effects in microcosm. Um, the f- uh, The first uh, in in relation to Neo yeah, Calvinism. Back in, uh, I, I've seen that. I saw that back in back in uh, Bible college when all the guys that were reading John Piper and Jonathan Edwards kind of set up their little club, you know. And they were they were kind of off doing their own thing. And they it was not a very big college. I mean, we're talking about it topped two hundred people in my <laughs> sophomore year. Okay, we're talking a very very small social circle.
0: I was going to say this got to be a small club.
1: Holy yeah. cow, you had 200
0: and, people at your college,
2: David? I thought TFC yeah. was small.
1: Uh, yeah, it was little. Um, most high schools are bigger than the place where I went to college. Um, there maybe a dozen guys, but they were a dozen senior guys, and they were a dozen senior guys who who occupied important positions in student body organizations, and also simply by the fact that they were senior guys They occupied an important position in the school. Um, They were the guys who spoke out most in classes on on uh, you know in the theology classes and such. And they kind of sat at their own table and they talked about their, you know, they talked about their books in the in in this very kind of uh, exclusive way. And and I resented that. So I guess I I still resent. I still resent that attitude. Um on the other hand, uh you know, I I was uh I mentioned this to to Michael earlier and I need to be careful. Um but I've also uh, experienced some uh an encounter with the emergence as well. Um but within uh a little closer to home, uh someone that I knew uh grew up with, in fact, Um, began reading, I I think it was, I think it was Blue Like Jazz or believe that was the book, Um, became enamored of the idea of, of, of a, of a nice, you know, laid back church where people did art and moved out West, got involved with a church that did that and ended up uh i think what was not prepared for the uh for the the philosophical underpinnings of what informed that movement and uh now is a, a self-proclaimed agnostic <laughs> um you know uh, and as best i understand it the uh, the openness that the emergence have toward uh toward certain lifestyles led to the embracing of lifestyles and once and once in those lifestyles um the church didn't seem so compelling anymore so you know and you know again i i don't want to say too much cuz this is this is close and it still um it still bothers the circle that i'm in um but uh, i i have a hard time talking about the emergence without without being angry without without feeling like they're not fully aware of what they're doing i uh, you know that that some maybe some people can handle what what they what they believe their approach to life and not slip off the edge but i wouldn't you know i wouldn't raise teenagers on it <laughs> anyway
0: all right michael how about your experiences with you know this exclusionary character of both of these movements i mean have you seen that played out or is that something that
2: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I have, and and like you said, the neo-Calvinists reject other Christians on the basis of creeds. Um, and and one way of looking at this is to look at how they treat people in the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America. Um, I, I'm a member of that. Um, there's a podcast uh, you and I both listen to called "Christ the Center." They're uh, kind of vaguely neo-Calvinist, would you say? Would they may just be Calvinist? I don't know.
0: I I, I think I'd call them neo-Calvinist. Okay. Go ahead.
2: Well, I agree with probably ninety five percent of what they say about doctrinal issues uh, I, I agree with them, and yet they 're really really fond of taking little swipes at the p c u s a as though it were this denomination composed of bold and offensive heretics and that 's been fairly typical in my experience with the uh, with the neo calvinists if you If you differ from them even a little bit you 're on the outside um but since the emergent church isn't big on creeds, I'm with you. Uh, they exclude people based not just on politics, but on kind of a relative degree of hipness, um, which would be defined by, <laughs> you know, the the postmodern theologians and philosophers you've read, the novelists you like, the music you listen to, uh, your politics, so forth. My experiences. Well, with whether or the emer- not you use a Mac. That's right. <laughs> cause it, my experiences with them have been such that anything a stereotypical non-Christian hipster would enjoy. Um, green politics, or microbrew beer, or indie rock, or you know, Apple. Um, that those things show up in the emergent church with this thin veneer of Christianity added onto them, and I think that's inexcusable. It- it's ridiculous. Uh, all those things are fine. I, I, uh, I, I like indie rock. I, I'm. We're recording this on an Apple. Um, I've been known to have a microbrew beer, although don't tell any Christian colleges I apply to. Um, those things are fine. But I I, I think this exclusion based on hipness is bad, and I think it's importantly bad um, for a couple reasons. Um, Number one, I don't want church to be somewhere I have to try to feel cool at because I don't ever feel cool. And, and yeah, uh, and number two, I don't want my pastor to be cool. You get uh, one of the phenomena uh, phenomena of the emergent church is the cool pastor. Brian McLaren's kind of a classic example. This guy's in his fifties and he's super, super cool. My my wife met him and she was intimidated. He was so cool. I, I don't like that. I I, I want uh, I, I want my pastor to have moved beyond the need to be up with trends in popular culture.
0: I, Michael, I think that we can make this our second ex-Cathedra pronouncement uh, as Christian humanists. I, can we all agree that pastors should not be cool?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Michael, we need, a, we need a unanimous pronouncement. You, I, I
2: said it to begin with. I didn't figure I had to assent to it. But yes. All right,
0: all right. So I, so Down with cool pastors. Ex-Cathedra pronouncements. One, you can't say that God doesn't want me to date you. Two, <laughs> pastors should not be cool. All right, Michael, sorry. I, I just wanted to get that in there before you continued
2: yeah and my third objection to the exclusionary hipness is that i think that emphasis is going to keep older people out of church and i am not at all interested in attending a church made up of completely of people under 40 as ninety-nine uh, percent of emergent churches seem to be if older hey, right. and more experienced people can't buy into your movement in my opinion anyway your movement isn't worth that much so I, well, I think it's interesting,
0: Michael. I, that, that was actually a follow-up question I was thinking of as you were talking about that. Is that from what I have read about Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle, it is also almost exclusively uh, made up of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, with almost no baby boomers to be seen, much less any World War II vets. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll I'll kick that back to you, Michael, and then David, you can jump in if you want. I mean, again, do you think that this is uh, simply symptomatic of a broader cultural movement that segregates ages? Or do you think that there's something intrinsic in these movements that gears them towards those who are generation X and
2: younger? Well, I think Driscoll's kind of a weird uh, liminal figure in that he started with the emergent church and, and then kind of became a neo-Calvinist and rejected them. And now they all hate each other. So I, I, I think there is a substantial difference between Mark Driscoll and John Piper. Uh, Piper's never been part of been part of that cult of the young movement, best I know, um, and certainly the uh, Christ the Center guys or any other um, neo-Calvinist podcast you want to name are probably not part of it. So I, I think I think Driscoll's um, youthism, if you want to call it that, comes from probably his association with the emergent church more than his association with neo-Calvinism. All right, fair enough. I mean, David.
0: What do you think about this? I mean, exclusion of those who are older than forty. That's not really old. I mean, I'm 32 now. I <laughs> 50 is looking younger and younger as I keep going.
1: Well, I think one of the well, the, this this goes back to um, the, their their embrace of of, of post modernity. Um, I mean, one of the one of the insights of postmodernity is the recognition that, uh, how much of our thinking is localized in place and time and culture, right? Um, but I think what they've done is, uh, failed to recognize that postmodernity is itself also localized in place and time and culture. And as a result, are attempting to make a Christianity that isn't, uh, that, that they, that they would hope isn't, uh, So, uh, so limited in those ways, but in fact really is to a very, very great degree. Um, and you see that generationally. Um, but personally, and and I've talked to my wife about this, we, we have, we have two, well, we have more standards for which churches we attend, but one of them is, uh, do I see significant amounts of gray and do I see infants? Uh, yeah, uh, we see that we, we think that we think that there's something significantly wrong about what is wrong. What is going on in the congregation if there are no if there are no older people, if there are no elderly um, people, my parents age, people, my grandparents age, great grandparents age. And what is wrong if there are no teenagers, no children, no infants? Um, because we think uh you know, a, a congregation needs to be uh, needs to be open to people at all phases of life. And uh, if if something if something's going on at this church, uh, and for whatever reason that ma- that makes people unwelcome because of their time of life, um, I'm 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 not comfortable with that. Whatever it is, and so as a result. Um, the emergence make me uncomfortable for that reason. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to have to keep up with their hipness, and I want to still be welcome when I'm sixty.
0: Absolutely, I, I am your um, amen corner here, Grubs. I, you know, I, and in fact, I would, you know, just because I tend to do this, I would take it a step further and say that, you know, age segregation is probably the fashionable segregation of our era. Uh, yes. it's no longer cool to separate into black and white. Uh, but it certainly is cool to separate into the MTV generation and the baby boomers. Yeah, I saw and some I, idiot you
2: know, on the FSU campus the... a few months ago wearing ahead, a shirt Michael. that said, old people suck. Who said this? Uh, I saw some idiot kid on the FSU campus a few years ago, and that's what it's, or a few months ago, and that's what his t-shirt said. Old people suck. Oh, and, and I thought, yeah. here's the problem with the modern age.
0: Oh sure, and I I mean, I think that part of the church's witness in this age, you know, has to be that, you know, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, no old or young. Uh, (laughs) And you know, I think that that really stands to be one of our most powerful statements as Christians in this world. And yeah, I mean, I you know, I agree with both of you that both on the hipness level and on the age level, you know, this is probably well. And I mean, I've, I've told folks, you know, who have asked me, you know, okay, Nate, why are you still in the institutional church, the IC, which is what the emergents like to call where I go on Sunday mornings. And, you know, my answer always is, all right, you know, show me the emergent church with a whole mess of 60-year-olds, and, you know, maybe I'll jump in with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, well, you know, we are coming up on the one-hour mark, so I want to ask one more question. Uh, I like to do a little lightning round here at the end. Uh, so going around the horn here, uh I want each of you to take your best guess as to what the future of these two movements might be. Are we looking at something that's like the Lutherans or the Calvinists that's going to last 500 years? Uh, are we looking at something more like the Shakers or the Rosicrucians that we're going to talk about as a historical oddity? David, am I shorting the Rosicrucians here? You can answer that when it's your turn. But first, Michael Farmer, one minute, your your prediction.
2: All right. I thought about this for a long time when I was uh, trying to write down my answer to this question. And I, I think what we're, what we're really looking at is the kind of thing we saw at the end of World War I, which is the liberal pieties had died and people had lost their faith in mankind. And so right now we're also seeing this slow death of mainline to liberal Protestant churches and people have been proclaiming the uh, forthcoming evangelical collapse. I think that's the Internet monks um, That is phrase. indeed. Okay, so what happened right after World War I is that you had these two theological movements, and I know you actually had about 500 theological movements, but I'm just going to talk about two of them. Um, You had on the one hand, you had the the neo-Orthodox theologians, you had Karl Barth and Emil Brunner, and they took the lessons of the 19th century seriously, but they rejected almost all of the theological liberalism from it. And then on the other, you had the neoliberals like Paul Tillich, who accepted um, much more of that liberalism, but still critiqued it um, in certain ways. So I've, I think what we've got is we've got the um, Neo-Calvinists, and they're more orthodox than the Neo-Orthodox, but they have this similar aura of conservative rebellion, and then you have the Emergents who are strikingly like Tillich in some portions of their theology. And I think it's instructive that you have very few people today who would call themselves either Neo-Orthodox or neoliberal. And uh, for those of you who know me, yes, I sometimes call myself Neo-Orthodox, but I'm an old-fashioned guy. True
0: sure enough. So- David Grubbs, so, you've got one minute. Predict for us.
1: My prediction is, uh, going back to our previous point about age segregation, if your movement is not, if, if if it, if you can't, if it's not equipped for raising children, and if it's not, and if it's something you can't keep being cool when you're seventy and eighty um if it's if it's a if it's a movement that doesn't embrace, embrace all phases of life i have a hard time seeing it seeing it last because you know because we're humans we're age we, you know we age we you know we're born we grow old we die um there there's something in you know in listening to what you guys have said and in what and what i've read that uh, that that being emergent seems very connected to a particular attitude of life that is uh, difficult to sustain throughout life. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't know how how, do, how does I mean do you think a, mu- a movement can survive if you can get into it when you're a cool teenager and uh, have to get out when you're a not cool anymore old guy. Um, you know. So as a, I, I I don't know that the emergence are gonna last that long. Neo-Calvinists, on the other hand, um I don't know how I don't know how neo they are because it seems to me that in every in every generation of Christians, you have people who get really earnest about orthodoxy. Um and and I th- I think that's I don't know how 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 long this particular movement is gonna survive, but I think it's a perennial instinct within Christendom. Um to particularly when threatened by perceived laxity to you know to double down on uh even even the uh fairly minor distinctives. Um I, I guess that's an answer.
0: <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, my prediction, and I'm only going to take about 20 seconds, uh, I think that, you know, going along with both with both of these people, both of my co-hosts, these people, who am I, John <laughs> McCain, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> what both of these gentlemen have said, uh, that this is, you know, one wave of church history, I think that we're in a period of time when the waves are coming very fast. Uh, I think that probably this wave won't last very long, but I think that similar waves uh, will come along so that A hundred years from now, people might look back at our strange little moment in history and say, all right, what's happening now? Looks like it also was happening in the first decade of the 21st century. Well, that is about all we have time for today. I want to remind all of you listeners that you can find us on the iTunes store by searching for Christian Humanist. You can read Michael Farmer's fine blog, Ladder on Wheels, at ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. You can read my less fabulous blog at www.nathangilmore.com slash hardly. Uh, Next week or next show, David, do you know what our topic is going to be?
1: It's been an idea that I've been batting around for a while, and it uh, derives from the uncomfortability of many Christians with fictions that are so completely fictional that they have nothing to do with the world that we know, namely science fiction and fantasy. Um, is this, uh, is this an art that Christianity or that, that Christians should be comfortable with, that we should embrace? Uh, what do we do with the completely artificial fiction?
0: So the next time that we record, listen for a discussion of science fiction and fantasy. Remember that our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. This is the Christian Humanist podcast. You have been listening to us. And I leave you with our standard admonition, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. So
2: the same